0: Luke chapter 1 verse 1, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed along all of things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. Now Luke chapter 24, verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him, and he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? Delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back, saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village where they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us when he talked to us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures? This is the word of the Lord.
1: We're in the middle of our series, fourth week of a five-week series called Defeaters. Today we're looking at the problem of the Bible. What are we to make of the Bible? You know, those who struggle with the Christian faith will inevitably wonder and ask that question at some point. What is the Bible all about? You know, the Bible is full of obscure ancient stories. It's full of very old and seemingly arcane historical records of names and places and events. And huge portions of the Bible just seem culturally insignificant at best, and at worst, culturally regressive to modern people. The Bible's full of miracles that seem historically unreliable. And you know, maybe the most prevalent problem that people in our day have with the Bible is it just seems irrelevant. Irrelevant to our lives, to our problems, to our fears, to our dreams for the future. So what can kind a of very old storybook have to teach us? And in what way can a very old book like the Bible help us in our problems in the year 2019. It seems to go far beyond the boundary of credibility. A few years ago, I was spending some time with my dad and both of my brothers, and uh, we were on a trip together, and neither of my brothers are currently following Jesus, and we were having dinner together, and the conversation turned to faith. It turned to spiritual matters, and uh, both of my brothers had a couple of drinks in them, and that doesn't hurt. You know, they were willing to open up and talk a little bit more, and they asked me a question. They said, you know, how can you take the Bible seriously? How can you take the Bible seriously? People don't walk on water. It just doesn't happen. People don't multiply bread for two people to suddenly feed thousands of people. And the most significant issue that they had was people don't just die and then come back to life. Those things just don't happen. None of us have ever seen any of those things happen or credibly heard of any of those things happening. And because of that and many other issues, I just can't accept that the Bible is accurate, true, or meaningful. They say the Bible's unreliable because it's full of this stuff and this sort of stuff just doesn't exist. You know, those are very common views for those who struggle with Christianity. Maybe that's a common view for you. Maybe it's something you've struggled with or are struggling with today. And that's why we're doing this series. We're calling this series Defeaters because we're asking and hoping to provide some answers for five of the biggest questions that skeptics and doubters and our non christian friends and neighbors have with the Christian faith. Today, we're looking at the problem of the Bible, which is undoubtedly one of the most prevalent questions that people in San Antonio in 2019 have about Christianity. This is one of the issues that inhibits people from embracing the claims of the church. So how do people handle the Bible? How do we handle the problem of the Bible? There's all kinds of things we could say this morning, but what I want to do is use these two bookends that Marianne read from the Gospel of Luke this morning to get at this problem. And I want to address um, three of the biggest accusations that you might have or that you might have heard concerning the scriptures of Christianity, what we call the Bible. I think the Bible itself actually addresses each of these problems in its own way. Let me just say at the beginning, I'm very dependent in every sermon, but in this sermon in particular, I'm dependent upon two sources. One is Tim Keller's book called The Reason for God, which is a great book about these exact sort of issues. And the other one is a book by a man named Richard Bauckham called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. So a lot of the stuff I'm going to give you this morning comes straight from those books. So the question is, the Bible's historically unreliable, The Bible's culturally regressive. The Bible's irrelevant to my life. What am I supposed to do with the Bible? Those are the three points we want to look at together this morning briefly as we study the Scripture. So first, let's look at the idea that the Bible is historically unreliable. The first question is a historical one. Is the Bible something that we can trust to convey what really happened? Is it historically reliable? And you know, a very common view especially if you've had any college classes on the Bible or on religion, is that the Bible cannot be trusted to convey what actually happened. If you walk into Barnes & Noble or whatever bookstore or scroll on Amazon, let's, let's be honest, that's what you're going to do. You're going to go to Amazon.com and you look at books on the Bible, then you could just almost select one at random and know that this is basically the approach they're going to take. When I was a freshman at Baylor, um, I had to take a lot of classes on religion because it's Baylor. And uh, in the classes I had on the New Testament and the Old Testament, each professor I had assumed from the outset, they assumed from the outset that the stories in the Bible cannot be trusted in the same way we would trust, you know, serious historical sources. The Bible was treated as, you know, as a collection of fables and stories of the people of Israel. And this is true in particular when we think about the heart of the Bible, the Gospels, and the New Testament. Many people today say that the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, were essentially concocted by the early church, early in in church history, like the 3rd or 4th century. And they were concocted or made up by the church in order for the church to gain power in the Roman Empire. So you remember the story uh, the book and the movie, The Da Vinci Code. The Da Vinci Code is basically premised on this entire idea. It made this idea famous, but it's been very common in Christian scholarship circles. The argument is basically that the New Testament, and especially the Gospels, are a product of the church attempting to consolidate its own political power. You might have heard the saying, history is written by the winners, Right? History is written by the winners, and that's basically the argument that people apply towards the New Testament. That's basically what skeptics say about the Gospels. They'll say, the original Jesus is unknown to us. But the ideas that Jesus claimed to be divine, and that he did miracles, and that he rose from the dead, all of those things were added by the later church so that the church could build their movement, and suppress other views of who Jesus really was. That's a very common view. So, the major underlying assumption about the New Testament is that it was written many decades after the events it describes, like a hundred or so years afterwards at least, to support the later church's view of who they wanted Jesus to be and to give the church power. And so, because that's the way the Gospels were created, they're not reliable. They're not reliable to give us consistent, accurate information about who Jesus was and about what really happened to Jesus. The Gospels, people say, have an agenda. They have an agenda, so we can't trust them. So what do we say to that? You might have heard that before. If you're hearing it for the first time today, I'm, I'm glad you're hearing it because it's a pretty significant defeater. Um, I just want to say two things briefly about the, the idea that the Bible's historically unreliable. First, the Gospels were written way too early. They were written way too early to be just made-up stories with a political agenda. Look at the opening of Luke, what Marianne read for us. And notice that Luke begins in chapter 1 by telling us how he compiled this narrative. He says, verse 2, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you. So what Luke is saying here is that in the writing of his gospel, in the composition of this story, he carefully researched everything he's written. And he also says, if you notice there, that he interviewed, he interviewed multiple eyewitnesses to the events. That's really, really important. Luke is saying, I'm getting this stuff from people that saw what happened. Why is that significant? Here's why it's significant. It means that Luke and all the other gospels were written so close to the actual events they describe that many of the people who witnessed those events were still alive. They were still alive when Luke was writing the story and when Matthew and Mark and John were writing their stories. The Gospels were all written within 50 years of the death and resurrection of Jesus, of the events that they describe. And Paul's letters in the New Testament were written even earlier. All of Paul's letters were written between 15 and 25 years after Jesus died and rose from the dead. And so that's why Paul can say, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6, Paul says this, then Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, and then he adds this, most of whom are still alive. Most of whom are still alive. Now, why does this matter? Why does that matter? It matters for this reason. If these stories are just concocted by the later church, if they're exaggerations or if they're not true, they would have never gotten off the ground. Because at least one of the many eyewitnesses who witnessed what really happened would have contradicted these writings. Let me try and give you an illustration from our day. Imagine that um, tomorrow, a biography of Bill Clinton is published. And this biography is largely about Bill Clinton's presidency. And it's written by a man, let's say, who was one of the members of Clinton's cabinet. So he had access to a lot of the most significant conversations and decisions that were made during the Clinton presidency, 20 or so years ago now, right? And imagine that this story contained all sorts of just total fabrications. Imagine that the author of the story is seen as the hero as the man who made all the best decisions and avoided all the worst decisions. What do you think would happen in the scholarly community of historians and just in our culture in general if that sort of biography were published tomorrow? Well, it would be roundly criticized. And the reason it would be roundly criticized and the reason that so many op-eds would be written saying, don't read this biography is because a lot of the people who were there are still alive. Clinton still arrived. I mean, Hillary probably has all the truth on her email servers, right? I couldn't resist that one. Um, So it's the same with the stories of the New Testament. The reason that we can trust them credibly is because if they were made up, some of the eyewitnesses would have certainly said, this isn't true, and the Gospels would have never gotten off the ground in the way that they did. But the Gospels were immediately widely circulated, And they immediately became popular and seen as authoritative. So that's evidence that these aren't just fabrications. It's evidence that they're reliable. One more piece for why the Gospels and the whole Bible are reliable. Why they're not just fabricated. And here's the second reason. They're way too counterproductive to be made up by the winners of history. Now remember, okay, think with me here. The theory is that the church leaders put in the Bible what they wanted you to believe... So that they could consolidate power. So that they could consolidate power later in the Roman Empire and eventually Rome became Christianized, etc., etc., etc. But if you actually read the Gospels, you should see that that makes no sense as an argument. If, If the later leaders of the church are making up the stories of the Gospels to make the church look good, they did a really terrible job. They did a really terrible job. I mean, think about it. These people who allegedly are concocting these stories would have been the heirs of the apostle Peter, the guy who started the church. And so if you're making up a story to help the church consolidate power, you're going to create Peter as probably a pretty solid figure, a guy that we can depend on. I want to follow that movement. You would not for sure put Peter denying Jesus three times hours before Jesus dies in the story, but that's what we have. The only reason we have these stories are because that's what happened. There's no reason, if the church is just doing this to consolidate power, that they would include all these terrible stories. I mean, the disciples, they're jerks. They're spiritually dense. They're clueless. If the New Testament and if the Gospels are given just so that people can see how great the church is and want to follow this new political power, then they did a really, really bad job. They're way too counterproductive. So, you know, we can summarize simply by saying that the Bible is good, credible, reliable history. The Bible was written close to the events it records, so close that many eyewitnesses were there to confirm the writings. And it doesn't read like documents attempting to make the church look good because it presents the leaders of the church in a bad light. And so because of that, it's fair to say that the Bible can be trusted historically. Now, I know for some of you, I know I've already lost some of you. You know, that first point just doesn't do much for you. Um, I'm really into history. I love this sort of stuff. But you might not, and that's okay. I'm still glad you're in here and you haven't left yet. Let me get to the second point. Uh, A much more common defeater, actually, regarding the Bible in our culture today is not so much that it's historically reliable than that it's culturally regressive. Uh, The Bible's on the wrong side of history, on all kinds of issues that we love in our culture now. Now, I don't have time to list all of the social issues that people in San Antonio today don't like about the Bible. Or all of the cultural issues people have with the Bible. So in response to this view that the Bible's just culturally regressive and history has surpassed the Bible, let me just say two things quickly. Okay, first, please consider the possibility that the parts of the Bible you find socially reprehensible or culturally regressive don't actually teach what you think they teach. Consider the possibility that they don't actually teach what you think they teach. Uh, We need to be patient with these texts and seek to understand what they're really saying. I mean, if you look at Luke 24 and the story of these disciples on the road to Emmaus, they did the same thing here. They thought that the Bible was teaching something that it actually doesn't. Namely, that Jesus was going to redeem Israel in his first coming. That would have been a very common assumption that Jewish people made. And the same thing can happen with us. We can misunderstand what a text really means. Let me give an example, okay? Um, One of the things that our culture, by the way, rightly, rightly, finds culturally regressive is the highly patriarchal culture of the Old Testament. Especially, say, a practice like polygamy. The Bible seems to condone and support polygamy. And all of the heroes of the Bible, Abraham and Jacob and King David, had many wives. And so women in particular in our culture will say, well, that's completely socially reprehensible. I can't believe that the Bible will condone such a thing. That's demeaning and degrading to women. And I would actually completely agree with that. And I think what I want to say is this. Anytime you read through the stories of the Bible and you see polygamy, finish the story. Because here's what happens. In every instance, it always ends in a complete, unmitigated disaster. Polygamy is presented as something that the Old Testament patriarchs did engage in without question. But it's not presenting these men as paragons of Christian virtue because they had multiple wives. Rather, every time you see polygamy in the Bible, it always leads to a disaster. What the Old Testament is doing is actually subverting. It's subverting this patriarchal paradigm. And it's saying through the story, this is not God's intent. That's why if you read through the story of King David, as soon as he starts marrying foreign women, non-Israelite women, and all kinds of women, things start going south quickly in the Davidic monarchy. That's just the way that stories are told. Consider the idea that when you find something culturally regressive, it might not be teaching what you think it's teaching. Secondly, please consider the possibility when you find the Bible to be socially unacceptable or culturally regressive, that you find the Bible to be that because you have your own cultural blinders on. That you find the Bible to be culturally regressive because you have your own cultural blinders on. I mean, that's what happens to these Emmaus disciples. Again, they were Jews. They wanted the redemption of Israel, and so they misread the prophecies of the Old Testament. They weren't thinking about the redemption of the entire world. It's easy to read a text in the Bible and misunderstand what it actually says because of our own cultural assumptions. It's easy to read a text in the Bible and misunderstand what it actually says because of our own cultural assumptions. Let me give you a very popular example. The Bible condones slavery. Paul says in Ephesians 6, slaves obey your masters. And so people, and I've heard this so many times, people will read through the Bible and they'll get there and they'll say, well, that's terrible. How can the Bible condone something like slavery? The Bible's clearly wrong about slavery. And if the Bible's wrong about slavery then maybe it's wrong about other things as well. Therefore, I can't trust it. And this is a great example of how our own cultural blinders prevent us from understanding what the Bible's actually saying. Now, Curtis Castleberry, a couple of weeks ago, when he preached on Philemon, did a really good job in his little introduction of laying this out for us. But real briefly, on this issue, let me just say this. Slavery in the ancient world is not what we think of when we think of slavery now as 21st century Americans. Slavery in the ancient world was not racially based, for one. For two, slavery in the ancient world was almost always temporary in order to pay off some sort of debt. In other words, most people who were slaves were manumitted within 25 or 30 years of their slavery. And then lastly, slavery in the Bible was not done through kidnapping, just like the African-American slave trade in our own country's history was. And kidnapping is roundly condemned in the Bible. So there's all kinds of significant cultural differences. When we read the word slavery, we think the African slave trade, Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King Jr., racial slavery, and that's rightly condemned by us. But that's not what the Bible's saying when it talks about slavery. All that said, the Bible doesn't say slavery's okay even the Bible's form of slavery. Rather, the Bible, in many ways, subverts that institution, just like it subverts polygamy and other things that we've already talked about. And if you read church history, you'll know that throughout history, it's almost always Christians who were most responsible for the ending of unjust practices like slavery. On the culturally regressive thing, let me just conclude by saying that I would actually argue um, that the Bible is culturally progressive (laughs) in the best ways rather than regressive. The entire story of the Bible is that all people are made in God's image. All people are worthy of love and honor and respect. And the Bible actually leads us to a place where those who are traditionally in positions of weakness in a culture, women, children, and minorities in the marginalized are treated with dignity and honor and respect in the scripture. It just doesn't add up when you see the Bible for what it is to say that it can't be trusted because it's culturally regressive. Think about it like this. One of the reasons I know Marianne and I have a pretty good marriage and our marriage is getting better is because we get into fights. We get into arguments with each other. That's a sign that our marriage is actually healthy. We're able to talk things through. We're able to disagree. If you're in a significant relationship with another human being, you should expect at some point in your relationship that that person is going to challenge you or disagree with you or not like something you say. Can it be the same with our relationship with God? If you read the Bible, and the Bible never challenges you, it never offends you, it never makes you think about your own presuppositions, then you've likely not understood the real God, but you've created a God who looks just like you. Tim Keller says it this way, "'Only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle, will you know that you have gotten hold of the real God and not a figment of your imagination.'" So briefly, we've dealt with the idea that the Bible's historically unreliable, that it's culturally regressive. Then lastly, I want to close with this. Many people don't have deep intellectual struggles with the Bible. Uh, It doesn't offend their sense of cultural propriety. It doesn't seem untenable historically to them. Rather, it just seems irrelevant. It just seems irrelevant A Barna survey that was recently done in the year 2017 showed that only 18% of millennials find Christianity relevant to their lives. So as usual, we can blame millennials for all of our problems culturally. Only 18% of millennials find Christianity relevant to their lives. And one survey respondent is quoted in that study as saying this. It's a strange practice to ask people who don't hold the same beliefs as you to conform to your morals because you quoted a book they don't read. It's a very common view. So what do we as Christians say to this? A couple of thoughts, then we're done, okay? First, whether or not the Bible is relevant, can we begin with this mutual starting point? Whether or not you think the Bible is relevant, we can all agree that we all have heartache, pain, and problems in this life. We can all agree that there's something wrong with this world and that there's something wrong with us. We can find common ground in our mutual pain, in our mutual brokenness. So given that, I want to suggest for you that billions, that's with a B, billions of people throughout history and today have actually found great help by reading and learning from and meditating on this very, very old book. So let me just say that it's actually quite arrogant, really. It's actually quite arrogant to assume at the outset that the Bible is irrelevant for you. A better posture is to be a real seeker. Why are seekers seekers, after all? They're seekers because they're looking, they're seeking for answers, they're dissatisfied, they're curious. They want more intellectually and emotionally satisfying approaches to their life. And I would encourage you to at least get to that point where you're willing to explore what the Bible actually is and what the Bible actually says, rather than just saying at the outset, it's irrelevant, I don't have time for it. And that leads me to the next point. The best answer to the question of the irrelevancy of the Bible is, for me to tell you, to read it. Read it. Because as you do this, something happens that we say a lot here at Christ Church. The Bible actually reads you more than you read it. One of my friends, I've told this story before. I'm just hoping you've forgotten it by now. Um, one of my friends, Josh, is a pastor in Phoenix. And his story is that he got to college. In his freshman year at college, he began to think about what he wanted to believe. He had kind of grown up in a nominally Christian home. And he knew he didn't believe the Bible for the same sort of reasons we've been talking about. It's just irrelevant. It seems regressive. None of these miracles can be taken seriously. But he was a man with enough intellectual integrity to commit to reading it so that he could form his own opinion. And so he began to read the Bible in his dorm room his freshman year of college. And as he read the Bible, the Holy Spirit ministered to his heart and opened up his eyes, just like Jesus opened up the eyes of these men on the road to Emmaus, to see Jesus in the fullness of his glory. And, you know, 25 years or so later, he's now a pastor of a PCA church in Arizona. The best answer to the question of whether the Bible is relevant or not is for me to encourage you to read it. And the hope for those of you who struggle with whether or not the Bible is relevant is found in reading it. And here's what you're going to find when you read it. The Bible is not really about you. That might sound kind of weird and off-putting, but it's true. The Bible is not really about you, and it's not really about your problems. The Bible addresses your problems, but it addresses your problems via what the Bible is about. The Bible is about Jesus. The Bible is the story of Jesus. Look at what Jesus says to these disciples in Luke 24, verse 25. He says, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary that I should suffer and enter into glory? And then Luke says, beginning with Moses and the prophets, with the Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning what? Himself. The things concerning himself. When you begin to see that the Bible exists to be a gateway for you, the Bible exists to be a gateway to fellowship with Jesus himself. The Bible is not primarily a playbook for you to solve all of your life issues. The Bible primarily is a gateway to knowing and seeing the real Jesus. When you begin to get that, you can begin to trust it. You can begin to enjoy it. When you see the Bible as a means of grace, a way of getting the fullness of Jesus' love, it becomes relevant. It becomes meaningful. It becomes life-changing. The Bible's eternally relevant because the Bible is where you meet with the risen Jesus Christ, where you have a personal encounter with Jesus, where Jesus comes and begins to transform you. That's why these disciples say at the end of our text, did not our hearts burn within us? Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and opened to us the scriptures? The question to ask regarding your relationship with the Bible is, has your heart been set on fire? Is your heart burning within you when you read it? That's one of the indicators that you're reading it rightly because it's one of the indicators that the Holy Spirit of God is meeting you through his word. Listen, my words can never justify God's word for you. I could preach for another hour and a half and I can't convince you that the Bible is God's word. And you know what? God doesn't need me or you to defend it. What he does ask of us, though, is to at least read it for ourselves and see what we can make of it. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon calls the Bible a lion, and he says that a lion does not need defending, and I think we would all agree with that. A lion does not need defending, a lion just needs to be let out of its cage, and it can defend itself. My final plea for you then, as we consider the problem of the Bible, would be for you to let the Bible out of its cage. Read it. Study it. Ask that God would make himself known to you if he's really out there or up there through it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, let's pray.